Hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Bob Spitz, who joins me to discuss his 2005 biography of the Beatles. Bob discusses his meticulous and lengthy research for this book. And he shares how his thoughts on the four Beatles changed as he wrote the book and how finishing the project made him reassess his whole life. Bob decided to return to music biography this year with his latest work, an in-depth and gripping look at the 70s biggest band, Led Zeppelin. Bob Spitz, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? Doing quite well and and really pleased to be here with you. Thanks, Bob. Uh, So we're going to speak mostly about the Beatles and a little bit about Led Zeppelin. So we're going to Start off by asking you to reach back into your memory to talk about the Beatles biography that you wrote. I was thinking about it actually this morning. There aren't that many. There's many Beatles books, as we know, but for pure biographies, before your book, there was really only the Hunter Davis book and the Philip Norman book. Tell us how and where the idea for this book came from. Yeah, you know, the New York Times had sent me to do a profile on Paul McCartney in 1997. And while he and I were talking, he mentioned that the Beatles, when they talked to Hunter Davies, had made a story up that half of it was untrue because they just wanted to protect their wives and their girlfriends and their family from some of the grittier grittier parts of the Beatles story. And he said, we've told that story so many times to Philip Norman, to Hunter Davies, to the press that we don't know what's real or what's not real anymore. It's become part of our lives. And so I remember looking at him and saying, do you want your legacy to be half true? And he said, you know, I guess not, but it's a, it's a big job. And I said, I know just the guy to do it. Did you have any reservations about undertaking something as, as huge as this? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Look, first of all, the Beatles had told all their friends and family not to talk to the press. Don't tell personal stories. And McCartney changed all that for me. I mean, I would go talk to like his cousins and his aunts and and some of the early band people that they played with in in Liverpool. And they'd all say to me, oh, no, no, we can't talk. And I'd say, you know, call Paul. And they'd come back and they'd say, well, this is incredible. Yeah, I mean, we can do it. And they were they had waited 40 years to tell their stories. I mean, the stuff that came out was spectacular. And, uh, and my biggest problem was when I turned in the manuscript, it was 2,800 pages long. I mean, <laughs> I, I remember putting it on my on my editor's desk and he just he stood back and he looked at it and he said, never seen anything like it. And, you know, it's unpublishable. And so they cut 1,700 pages out of it. I mean, all those great Beatles stories that people told me, we had to let them go because they only wanted to do a one-volume book. So let's talk a little bit more about some of those those sources, those those people that you talked to. Tell us about some of the the kind of standout people that you you spoke to. Tell us about people that really impressed you when you went to speak to them. Well, the best part was really talking to all those Liverpool bands, all the uh, all the early bands that they started out with. Everybody was there, you know, or they were reachable people who, I mean, had gone on to have different kind of lives. And they were they were like little kids. I mean, it was great putting that whole 
all seen together. I was fortunate that uh, I was able to come there every other week for two years. And so I really immersed myself uh, in that culture. And, and I really came to understand being a biographer that you can't tell anybody's story until you really find out where they come from. And in the case of the Beatles, you know, it's a story about Liverpool. I mean, everything that the Beatles were originated in Liverpool. And that was fantastic because it allowed me to bring cultural context to the story in a way that was so sorely needed. And so um, I spent a lot of time there. Uh, of course, all, I found all the Hamburg people as well. And, you know, Brian Epstein's relatives, Brian's lawyer gave me a Brian's journal. He had kept it as a young boy, uh, even while he was at the Royal Academy studying he did a journal every day. And so, I mean, what a what a trove of information to have that at your fingertips, to be able to recreate it and, and make the reader feel like you're right there with the Beatles. I, I mean, you know, the book opens at Litherland Town Hall after they come back from uh, playing in Hamburg. And the kids don't really know who they are. And they had, I mean, they didn't have a bass player. So they got another kid who they knew to play bass. I even found him 40 years later, you know, working as a clerk someplace. And um, it, it was great to be able to, to bring new legend to the old legend and, and to fill in some of the gaps. One of the characters in your book that really comes out from that Liverpool period is Bob Wooler. Yes. What do you remember about meeting him? Oh, what, what an experience. Um, yeah, wow. I was in that great hotel that in Liverpool and Bob came to see me on three successive days and everybody said to him, you gotta, you gotta interview Bob Wooler in the morning because if you do in the afternoon, he will be dead drunk. And so we did it at 10.30 in the morning and the first two days, the drinks just started coming out while we were, while we were talking. But he was wonderful. You know, he was so articulate. And then by, you know, maybe one o'clock in the afternoon, I'd have to cut it off because we'd have to carry him out. <laughs> um, and so the third day, uh, I had a, I had a like little signals with the waitress uh, to cut him off. And he figured out what was going on and he got furious and stormed out. But I had had at that point about 12 hours of just incredible insight from this guy who not only knew the Beatles and could really talk to me about their personalities, but he knew everybody else on the scene as well. And, and of course, you know, there was John's old art teacher who really filled me in on, on John, but not only that, on Liverpool as well. Mm. What an experience. I, you know, the book took me eight and a half years to write, and I don't regret a single day of it. It was uh, it was and remains the experience of my life. Just as a comparison, obviously, after Liverpool, they then, all four of them, essentially moved to London. And there's quite a few people that you, you met down there. What did you find about the people that knew them when they were famous? Was there a difference in the kind of the perception of them once they became, you know, the Beatles? Well, yeah, of course, it was the old north-south divide come to life. You know, and here Paul is 
living with uh, the Asher family and John is hanging out with John Dunbar. There's a different kind of, I, I hate to use the word, but I will, sophistication about it. And the Beatles, they melt right into it. I mean, they were they were perfect examples of guys who could be taken out of one situation and acclimate themselves to another and flourish, which they did, as opposed to somebody like John Bonham in my current Led Zeppelin story, Mm. who came from the Midlands and could never really feel comfortable anywhere else. So the, the Beatles were charmed. I mean, you know, the fact that we got these four boys who came from kind of hard scrabble backgrounds and were able to emerge as young men at the peak of their powers in a completely different milieu. What a remarkable story. I mean, it's it's a fairy tale. And I really felt as I was writing it that I was writing a fairy tale. So let's drill down a little bit more on, on that fairy tale. I mean, it's a, as you say, it's the ultimate story. Were there right. part were there parts of the story that were easy to write about and parts that were hard to write about? Was there particularly challenging kind of art areas over the course of their career? You know, I have to say, not at all. It was all easy to write about. Uh, look, I had been on the road researching for three years. I really laid the the, the bedrock of all of my research. And I had it at my fingertips. At one point, I had 50,000 pages of research in my house. And I, I, at the, you know, I had worked with Elton John in my previous career. And I remember Nigel Olson used to play the drums. The drums would be all around him. And that's the way my research was. I felt like I was Nigel Olson. And I sat on a spinning office chair and I would grab books everywhere. But it all kind of fell into place. And so I was able to gravitate from Liverpool to Hamburg to London to the road. I guess the hardest part would have been, you know, the breakup at the end because I had great access to their files with that as well. Mm. You know, when you you spend eight years with, uh, with four guys um, to watch them break up like that, uh, it felt so tra- tragic. And, uh, and so, so that was a little harder for me to write, but say la vie. Was there a part of the story that you that kind of stood out to you, India or yeah, Hamburg, or is there anything that really kind of yelled at you? Definitely Hamburg. I mean, look, here they become the Beatles. Hmm. Uh, they had left Liverpool as the worst band in Liverpool, no doubt. Everybody felt that way about them. They get to Hamburg and they learn how to perform. I mean, and in the worst, crappiest situations possible. And and maybe that's what it took for them to learn how to perform. But, you know, they had this awful German guy shouting mock show, mock show at him and stamping his feet and all these villains around with their koshes. And, you know, the, the Beatles put their nose to the grindstone and they they really discovered their craft. And so to be able to be, you know, quote unquote, in Hamburg with them and and to watch that materialized was great but so was the Liverpool part too I mean wow that music comes out of nowhere and boom it hits you right in the face so let's talk a little bit about the individuals did your view of 
any of the individuals of the four, obviously of the four Beatles, change from the start of the project to the end of the project? Were you a John or a Paul guy, or did, did that alter as you wrote the book? Look, as as the book rolled out, I was a Paul guy, and then I became a John guy, and then I became a George guy, and then I became a Ringo guy. I mean, you know, look, the yes, my feelings did change. I mean, John goes through a transformation three times in the book that is fascinating to watch. Uh, and I felt differently about him. You know, a couple of times I thought, well, you know, you're the guy holding this band together. You're the heart and soul of it. And then at other times I thought, you're the guy who's killing this band. You know, hang on here a second. But I felt the same way about Paul. You know, I think of all the Beatles, Paul was the, the most creative. I mean, this is the guy who invented rock bass. Let's be honest about it. Uh, but then seriously, you know, I don't think Yoko broke up the band. I think it was because of Paul. I think he was just overbearing in the studio. And so, you know, I, my feelings changed all the time. And I think that was a good thing that when you're writing a book about a group like this, you don't get attached to any one person. I mean, look, at the beginning of the story, George is, I think in the words of George Martin, a cheeky little bastard. Uh, <laughs> he's a wise guy. He uh, never really paid attention in school. He didn't have too much on the ball. He just watched cartoons all the time. What do we get from George at the end? I mean, look what he became. I mean, the guy grew up and found soul and spirit and intelligence beyond any of their dreams. And so, you know, to watch these guys morph like a butterfly, a caterpillar to a butterfly, whew, what, a, what, a, what an odyssey for me. It was great. Was George aware of you writing the book? Yes, he was. In fact, I saw him here in the States while he was getting treatment in Staten Island. And uh, it was only about a month before he died. And he was very forthcoming, really, really reflective and uh, and provided a lot of insight into his character. So it, it helped me out enormously. So Ringo, then you, you just mentioned Ringo there. You, you ended up as a Ringo guy. What is it <laughs> and was it about Ringo then that drew you to him so much? Well, look, here's here's Ringo Starr is a boy who never went to school one day in his life. He was sick and he was kind of institutionalized or at home the entire time. And he, he was a guy who wasn't even supposed to live past his 20s. I mean, look at Ringo today. Yeah. Boy, would I like to trade places with Ringo. That guy looks better than anybody. He looks better than Paul and, and will outlive us all. Is happy as a buckaroo. And, uh, you know, so look, the other thing it was, I came to appreciate Ringo as a drummer. Everybody always said that, you know, Ring Ringo was just workmanlike. Mm -hmm. And then someone who was a drummer said to me, go back and listen to Day in the Life and try to tell me how a drummer plays that. Well, as a musician, I can tell you, it's a, a work of art. That guy really knew what he was doing. And, you know, he was, he was the heart and soul. He was the guy who always made the Beatles laugh, who would always say, come on, when they were fighting and let's just play and let's have fun. And uh, every band needs a guy like that. So, you know, at different points, I'm beholden to each one of them. So I think it's interesting to look at kind of how the book kind of came out. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, 
fascinating that you said there was a lot that you couldn't use or that you weren't allowed to use there. How did you, how did you feel when the book was finished? Was there a, a, a relief? Was it uh, something that you really missed doing? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, of, of course, I miss spending eight and a half years with these guys every day. I mean, and also, you know, while I was writing it, I realized that, yes, I was telling the Beatles story, but really I was writing the story of my life. These guys changed everything about the way I was as a, as a kid mm. and what I've become in my life. You know, and I owed it all to them. Was I upset when I heard they were cutting? Well, first my editor called and said, uh, I'm going to send the manuscript back to you. I've cut out 1,100 pages. And I thought, well, he's taken my heart. You know, <laughs> my heart is laying on an operating table somewhere. And I read it and I called him back and I said, what did you cut? I mean, it was seamless. And then he called me back and said, well, now I'm going to make you cry. Another <laughs> 600 pages have to go. Uh, and he cut out stories like Tommy James told me that when he and the Shondells were on the tour bus with them, how they'd all be playing poker and the Beatles fleeced them, would, you know, would wait until they got their paychecks and then play poker with them and take all their money from them. So the guys had to borrow money back at that, from them at incredibly high interest rates. You know, I mean, you can't lose stuff like that. But alas, I did. There were, so there were a lot of great stories. Um, I don't know. Someday maybe there'll be a director's cut. That was my next question. Is, is there any chance that some of this stuff could be used in the future? You know, everybody's been asking me about that. One day, I think maybe I'll just dump it all online and I'll let you know in advance. That sounds good. Now, um, what happened after you finished this book? Because you, you didn't go back to biography and certainly not music biography for, for some years after that. Was that a conscious kind of move not to, to, to write a similar book after this one? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, look, I went through uh, an incredibly hard time. First of all, the Beatles was supposed to take about three years to write. So in the fifth or sixth year, my advance ran out. Right. And I was literally living hand to mouth. Uh, my friends came through like crazy, loaning me money. There were nights that the dog ate and I didn't eat. Uh, also during this time, uh, I moved out of New York, a city that I absolutely loved. A marriage broke up. Uh, and I became the sole parent of an 11-year-old girl. So at the end of this book, first of all, the, my four friends are taken from me. My marriage is gone. I'm in a place that I don't know where I am anymore, not in New York. I've got a daughter to take care of. So I did what any guy... Oh, and I had turned 50 during this. I mean, you know, an old rock and roller turning 50. It was catastrophic. So I did what any guy who's in that situation did. Uh, I ran away to Europe to learn how to cook. I spent a year going to 16 cooking schools in France and Italy, studying with the masters to learn how to cook, and came back and wrote a book about it uh, called The Saucier's Apprentice. And then, of course, you know, uh, when you learn how to cook and you meet somebody like Julia Child, uh, I decided to write her biography. And that swung me right back into the uh, into the old profession again. Before we move on to, to Led Zeppelin, if we could just spend a few more minutes on, on this sure. book, what kind of reaction did you get uh, from, first of all, from some of the parties involved, obviously principally Paul, 
And how do you feel about the book now? In Well, Paul called it the best book on the Beatles ever written. And he's really continued to refer to it that way over the years. So I'm, I'm really indebted to him. I mean, you know, I got a really incredible call from him afterwards because he had read the part in the book where his mother is about to go to the hospital because she's developed cancer and she knows she's never going to be able to come home again. She'll die in the hospital. And I had found Paul's aunt who he hadn't seen in 30 years, who went with Mary that last day in the house and closed the house up and took her to the hospital. And she gave me a blow by blow description. And when he read that his mother left the house to take a bus to the hospital, but then ran back in to lay out the boy's clothes for school the next day, he burst into tears. And so those are the little things that uh, occur in a biography that changes the course of biography. Uh, Little moments that are so important to character, to development, to letting you, the reader, know that you're there in an intimate, behind-the-scenes place that really, you know, here we are, it's 17 years after my book is published, Mm -hmm. and that book still sells like crazy year after year, and I get so many, uh, so much really wonderful email from readers about it. So, um, you know, I feel like I did my job, And, and, and I think that, you know, it is not about wings, it's not about what happened to John tragically afterwards. It's called The Beatles because it's about the Beatles. It ends when the Beatles break up. And I think it stands as the Beatles biography. I think it's, you know, if you want to read about the band, I'll brag a little. I think my book is the book that really will give you the most insight to what was happening, make you feel like you're there right alongside them. Uh, just a last line on on this book. I think the one of the strengths of of the book actually for me is the the women in the story mm-hmm. of which there are several obviously um i think they get a a really fair hearing which certainly didn't happen in some of the previous biographies um i mean did you get to uh, some of their early girlfriends or right up to the kind of yoko or cynthia those kind of people yes i found paul's 15 year old girlfriend i mean who had never been, never talked to the press ever. Here it was 45 years later. Uh, it took me months to find her and she was living in a small town in Canada. And when she answered the phone and I told her I wanted to speak about Paul McCartney, she said she she almost dropped the phone. Uh, uh, even her husband didn't know that she was Paul McCartney's girlfriend. And so that was really fun. I mean, mm-hmm. And she really, she went to Hamburg with Cynthia. And so she could give me the real background of what was going on there. And I think I really came to understand Cynthia quite well. Uh, I talked to all her friends from Liverpool and the people who had grown up with her and really understood what John saw in her and how, and I found John's early girlfriends as well. And you know, so uh, yeah, I was really, uh, I, I was really blessed in the way the access that I had to these people and and how forthcoming they were all throughout and Mm. all new information. So it was great. So moving on to the the kind of current book in hand, Led Zeppelin, uh, 
another huge act in pop and rock history, which you've managed to uh, kind of nail and, and write about. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about, about that book. You could have gone, as you said, you kind of shied away from music biography for a bit. So what led you to, to start to write about, about Zeppelin? You know, my editor called me and said he wanted me to, I was working on another book at the time, and he said, listen, I want you to write uh, a book about a band. I wanted to publish this book my entire career, and he made me guess. He, the only hint he would give me is he said, They've sold more albums than anybody but the Beatles. So, you know, I started to guess. I thought, well, it couldn't be the Who or the Stones. I knew that, wasn't it? Elvis? No. And then I thought, oh, no, good Lord. He wants me to write about ABBA. I thought, now I'm in trouble. I can't do that. He said, no, it's Led Zeppelin. And I have to tell you, my heart kind of fell out because I have 20,000 vinyl albums in my collection. And I don't have a single Led Zeppelin album. And if you would ask me to name any of their songs, I might have been able to name Stairway to Heaven and a whole lot of love, but that would have been it. So, you know, I really had to pause and think if I was the right guy. And then I realized I came in with no preconceived notions whatsoever, and that I was an empty vessel, and I was going to let their music just fill me up. So I studied their music for months, months on end. And if I wanted to really hear about how John Bonham played the drums, I got Carmine Apice, who was the drummer for Vanilla Fudge, who was just about as good as Bonzo, to sit with me and explain what he was doing with Jimmy's guitar, Jeff Beck. And so I really approached this from the ground up and and learned like crazy and and just listened and listened. And then I did what I did with the Beatles. You know, I went to where they lived, where they grew up uh, and where Jimmy Page grew up. Jimmy Page grew up in the same town as Glenn Johns, Jeff Beck, five minutes away. And in the other direction, Eric Clapton, five minutes away. I mean, something was in the water there and in, in, in <laughs> And just to be able to like recreate Sunday afternoons in 16-year-old Jimmy Page's living room with his parents in the background, but Eric Clapton sitting on one side and Jeff Beck sitting on the other side, trying to figure out what James Burton was doing on a Ricky Nelson album. And then they're all sitting there with their guitars. I mean, wow, what a fantastic, you know, the story was great. Uh, It goes in a different direction than the Beatles. You know, with the Beatles, the Beatles was a post-war band. So was Led Zeppelin, different wars, Vietnam War. The Beatles were romantics. They wrote songs like, you know, Please Please Me, I Want to Hold Your Hand, P.S. I Love You, not Led Zeppelin. They wrote the Lemon Song. They came at you a different way. It was about aggression in music. And so it gave me this whole other universe to tackle. Plus, there was the wonderful phenomenon that happened in the UK that didn't happen in the States. And that was the kids' discovery of electric blues. We missed it here in the States completely. But wow, it was deep stuff in the UK. And so we got the Yardbirds and we got the Rolling Stones and we got John Mayall and Blues Incorporated. And this, as a biographer, as a music biographer, 
It allowed me to veer off into territory. Number one, I had never been before, but number two, I found just as fertile as the Beatles. And so I loved every minute of it. And um, I am just as happy with this Led Zeppelin biography as I am with the Beatles. What do you think was the the kind of magic, the key to that? Obviously, there were lots of big bands in the in the 70s. What was it about Zeppelin that made them rise above all the rest of them? Well, they were the first. I mean, Jimmy Page had a sound in his head that we didn't know in rock and roll. And he, he took, you know, the electric blues and he hot wired and jacked it. And Jeff Beck was doing the same thing too. But Jimmy did it in a big way with those pounding drums and Robert's cat wailing voice and really threw this into a new generation of kids. You know, it wasn't the 14-year-old girls that were around screaming and pulling their hair out with the Beatles. It was 15-year-old boys. And it wasn't a band that had fans who were doing uh, marijuana and LSD. This was the cocaine generation. And so aggression was right up there. And Led Zeppelin gave them the soundtrack for their generation. And then, you know, there were copycats, just like there were copycats with the Beatles. But I think, you know, Led Zeppelin, they had their foot in the door first. And, and it, listen, give Jimmy Page a, a lot of bad credit for stuff that happened later on. But he sure gets the good credit for uh, giving us a sound and, and a new form of rock and roll that we had never heard before. Just a slight cliche with Zeppelin, and I'm curious to kind of get your view on it, is that You've got the the two halves of Zeppelin. You've got the light and the dark, the light of Plant and of John Paul Jones and the, the dark of Jimmy Page and, and of, of Bonzo, as you say. Do you think that's inaccurate or is that just too simplistic a reading of the oh, group? You're, you're absolutely right. And a biographer couldn't ask for any more. You've got the good characters and the villains. Yeah, I mean, look, Jimmy and Bonzo got into some some bad stuff. And it really ruined the band, you know. Um, it did. I mean, it cleaved it in half. Robert and Jonesy, um, at a certain point, just didn't know what the band was anymore. And and Jimmy and, and Bonzo, and I felt sorry for them because drugs got the better of them. These guys were fabulous musicians who were making money hand over fist and were revered by kids all over the world and it all came crashing down on them. But, you know, again, I'll just say it again for a biographer boy, wonderful stuff. You know, it's, it's the drama is there. And uh, once again, I, I hope I've taken you, the reader, taken you behind the scenes so that you feel you're right there with them the whole time, whether it's backstage or in their hotel rooms or on the starship or, or in the recording studio you are sitting with them and you hear everything that's going on. You, f you know where that music comes from. So um, just, just to kind of conclude, Bob, we've done The Beatles, we've done Led Zeppelin, we've done Judah Child, we've done Ronald Reagan. Can you give us any hint of, of what the next Bob Spitz project might be? Oh, more than a hint, I'll tell you. I've just signed a really fabulous deal and I'm going to be the Rolling Stones biographer. <laughs> Makes perfect <laughs> sense, doesn't it? <laughs> Uh, so it's a five-year project, five or six years, and uh, everyone's cooperating. And wow, uh, you know, I've worked, I've, I've written about bands 
who each have had in the past careers that lasted 10 years. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do a 60-year band. I better tell my editor that uh, if he saw 2,800 pages for the Beatles, he better get himself a wheelbarrow. Well, Bob, I think that's a, that's a really fascinating way to, to end. Um, it's been really great uh, talking to you. The Beatles, as you say, is out there and has been out there. And Led Zeppelin is the current book. Bob Spitz, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Joe. Nice talking to you.